If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much. This is great. This is so great because a week ago, there was a campaign from a a liberal student in the Yale Daily News. (laughs) Maybe you saw it, I don't know. There was a campaign to convince people in the Yale community not to come to this event, because you see, to come to this event tonight would legitimize Cruz and Knowles. It would pose a threat to American democracy. And Senator, Here we are in a room full of at least 500 people, completely packed, live from Yale University. This is Verdict with Ted Cruz. This episode of Verdict with Ted Cruz is brought to you by American Hartford Gold. Now, the new inflation numbers are out, and I think we can all agree they are incredibly depressing. The price of gas is way up. The price of housing is up. The U.S. national debt is way, way, way up. And unfortunately, given the way that our current administration prints money and spends money, experts don't see this going away, this inflation going away anytime soon. So how do you protect your money? your savings, your retirement from inflation. Well, when times are turbulent, Americans like you turn 
to physical gold and silver. And American Hartford Gold can show you how to hedge your hard-earned savings against inflation by diversifying a portion of your portfolio into physical gold and silver. And it's really easy to get started. All it takes is a short phone call and they will have physical gold and silver delivered right to your door or if you prefer inside your 401k or your IRA. They make it easy. If you call them right now, then they will give you up to $1,500 of free silver on your first order. So don't wait, call them right now. Call 855-768-1883. Or if you prefer texting, you can text the word cactus to 65532. Again, the phone number is 855-768-1883 or text the word cactus to 65532. Today's episode of Verdict with Ted Cruz is brought to you by IPVanish. Did you know that browsing online using incognito mode doesn't actually protect your privacy? Without added security, you might as well give all your private data away to hackers, advertisers, your internet service provider, and who knows who else. IPVanish helps you securely and privately browse the internet by encrypting 100% of your data. This means that your private messages, passwords, emails, browsing history, and other information will be completely protected from falling into the wrong hands. IPVanish makes you virtually invisible online. It's that simple. Just for Verdict listeners, IPVanish is offering an insane 70% off their annual plan. That's like getting nine months for free. You have to go directly to ipvanish.com slash cactus to get this 70% off discount. IPVanish is super easy to use. Just tap one button and you're instantly protected. You won't even know it's on. You can use IPVanish on your computers, tablets, and phones. Whether you're at home or in public, don't go online without using IPVanish. Don't forget, Verdict listeners get 70% off the IPVanish annual plan. Just go to ipvanish.com slash cactus to claim your discount and secure your online life. That's ipvanish.com slash cactus. I love you. This, this is my alma mater. I love Yale. I, I don't know if my alma mater loves me quite so much, but I love it. And I'm so dismayed when I see Yale at the forefront of shutting down speech. Just last week, Kristen Wagner, a conservative lawyer, was shouted down at Yale Law School. This is supposed to be the number one law school in America. Someone actually said in the room, a Yale Law student, I'll fight you, B-I-T-C-H. That's the kind of discourse we're seeing here. I remember some years ago, there was a gal, we called her Shrieking Girl, an undergraduate screaming at her professor, saying, this is not an intellectual space. This is supposed to be a place of comfort and home for me. Senator, what's going on in the Ivy League? Well, Michael, I'm very glad to see that they're teaching spelling at Yale. <laughs> and, and, and I will say, you know, it, it's you have been longing to come back here for the two and a half years we've been doing this podcast. We went on the road. We did a campus tour last year. And I have to say, I still remember we were at Catholic University in Washington, D.C. And afterwards, a student comes up and ask you, Michael, to cite, mm -hmm. and to recite, rather, Dante's Inferno in the original Italian. This is true. This the is two of you proceeded to do so almost in three-part harmony. <laughs> and so my question is, number one, can you do it again? And number two, what are the students at Yale going to ask you today? Senator, uh, when I... When I was an undergraduate here and I was a single man, I, I had to learn... That's hard to believe. No, I, I had to learn some Italian poetry because, look, I wasn't on the football team, okay? I didn't have my... It was the best I could Wait, do. Wait, Yale has a football team? <laughs> it's, it's, there's a rumor. I, All right, I had to get something this, in. <laughs> the, the football team, guys, they're the only conservatives at the whole school. So, All right, fair enough. <laughs> 
But I did, the question is a really good one, Senator, which is, okay, if you're a Catholic you, they have you recite Dante. What do they have you recite at Yale? And I fear the answer is, uh, I don't know, Foucault, Ibram Kendi these days. I don't know, Robin DiAngelo. It's this, the state of American higher education Though we're all having fun here together tonight, no one has busted down the door yet and yelled any four and five letter words at us. The state of American higher education. Okay, it's, it's only here that profanities are five letter words. <laughs> well, no, the one they yelled at like Kristen Wagner. Is it like ours goes to 11? Is it, <laughs> it, it, it that we just put extra ones? Yeah, some in French, you know. But the state of American higher education <laughs> yeah. is in a, it is in a sorry state. So what happened? We're supposed to be with the elites. We're supposed to be with the future leaders. Everyone who is, matriculates at Yale is told you're going to be president for three terms. You're the greatest person in the world. And yet, why are our elites doing such a poor job of things? Look, higher education has embraced the idea that the school is about not challenging you, is about making you comfortable. The whole point of a university is to make you uncomfortable. The whole point of a university is to challenge you with ideas posit as a crazy idea that when you enter college at 18, every idea you believe maybe is not fully formed and you don't entirely understand the entirety of the universe. Mm. If that's true, the most important value of college is encountering others who challenge your ideas, who challenge your assumptions, who make you think. And, and, and look, I mean, when I went to school, I had a lot of professors who I disagreed with profoundly. I thought it was very useful to hear their worldview, hear what they're saying, because at the end of the day, most of the stuff you learn in college, you're not going to do for your career. I mean, most of the, you know, you know think how many classes you had in college that, 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 that are useful to being a, a world-class podcaster Stop now. Stop it. Get out of here. You're um, going to make me blush. You know, I did take bartending at Princeton. That, that has been useful. Mm -hmm. That's a hard skill. But look, at the end of the day, what you're learning is how to think. And if you're only encountering ideas you agree with, then by definition, you're not learning how to think. That, that, that's the most pernicious part of it at, at, at all, is, is that training people in groupthink, training people you cannot think differently. You know, Galileo was told the same thing. It didn't work out well. <laughs> Science philosophy, literature, they're all about challenging assumptions, challenging what you think, and, and, and the very dynamic that you have. And, and look, what happened to Yale Law School, what's sad about that is it's not unusual. Yeah. You see it happening at universities all over the country where speakers come in. I mean, in that instance, Kristen Wagner, who was there, is a Supreme Court advocate who had just won a case by a vote of seven to two at the U.S. Supreme Court. Now, I get it. The students at Yale Law School, they didn't like that case. They didn't like that case. They were upset about it. So instead of coming in and saying, well, you know what? I think the justices got it wrong. You know what? I think, I think the Constitution says something different. Instead of doing what one would imagine Yale lawyers would be capable of doing, which is presenting arguments and reasoning, they instead try to exercise the heckler's veto and just scream down anyone who disagrees. That's not just harmful on the particular issue that they're not hearing the other side. It's harmful for thinking in life. And, and I got to tell you, when you come out of school, 
Most places you work are not safe spaces. Most bosses are not going to be overly worried about injuring your fragile feelings. And so I think the point of education is to prepare you for life. And that means encountering things that make you uncomfortable, that make you doubt, that make you question. That's really what an education is all about. I, I joked when your former, not classmate, but fellow Harvard Law uh, graduate, Judge Katanji Jackson, when she failed to answer the question, what is a woman? When she laughed, she said, can I answer? Of course I can't answer that question. I'm not a biologist. When, when she did that, my first thought was, only someone with two degrees from Harvard could be so stupid as to not know <laughs> what a woman is. And, And so, I don't know, I mean, as you say, there are these problems at all of the universities, but to me, it seems more, it actually seems more pronounced in the Ivy League, these supposedly prestigious institutions, where it seems that whatever you see about free speech on other campuses, Yale Law School is supposed to be the top law school in the country, screaming profanities at a lawyer for having an open discussion. How do you, how do you fix that? I, I don't want to sound like the old man, back in my day things were better, but things really do seem to have gotten worse. Michael, one of the things I love about you is I'm confident since you were five years old, you've been the old man yelling, <laughs> I, get off my lawn. And I, it, I came out of the womb with a cigar in my teeth, you know, <laughs> hair parted. Yes, Your mother's still ticked off about that. <laughs> she is, it hurts, it hurts. Yeah. Look, we need to be, particularly in the so-called elite institutions, willing to think for ourselves. Hmm. You're right. Schools like Yale, the students are told all the time, you are the leaders of the world. You are the future Bill Clintons of the world. The kid who wrote that op-ed calling for people to boycott us, he said there... There is a great power and responsibility that comes with being a Yale. The kid is 18 years old. This is what, this is what these students are told. Uh, look, and I think it's part of why, if anything, the censorship is greater because the fear is greater. Hmm. At an institution like this, every student here worked your tail off since you were in kindergarten. You were struggling with the perfect attendance. You were struggling to put the apple on the teacher's desk. You were struggling <laughs> to be in student council and drama and debate and football and, and underwater basket. We mm -hmm. I don't even know what, but, but it was, you know, look, you recall the speech that it seems deans give about their a gazillion valedictorians in the world. We turn half of them down. Yeah. And, and that, when you get into a place like Yale, now, I wouldn't know, <laughs> but I would imagine that A, there's a sense of relief of, okay, all right, I've made it, <laughs> but there's also a sense of terror of, oh, crap, like, like, like what if I lose it? What, what if I mm. anger the gods of Yale? Yeah. Although I don't, I'm not sure God or man are allowed at Yale. No, no more. Uh, mostly, <laughs> mostly demons and people of unspecified gender. Yeah. But, 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 but. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but look, it, it, it is when you've worked very hard for something, you're often afraid to lose it. 
And if you're afraid to lose it, you don't want to take risks. Um, all right. I remember coming out, of, coming out of law school, coming out of a clerkship. So I clerked for a judge in the Court of Appeals, clerked on the Supreme Court. I'm clerking for Chief Justice Rehnquist, which, who was an amazing friend, an amazing boss. And I remember coming out, you got 36 Supreme Court law clerks coming out. And almost all of them were unbelievably risk averse. They were going to big fancy law firms because that's the next blue chip thing to do mm -hmm. unless you go become law professors and then train other people to continue to perpetuate the cycle. Hmm. I remember when I came out, I went to a little bitty law firm. It, it had six lawyers, it was nine months old. And I thought it was fascinating listening to a lot of my co-clerks. They were like, well, wait, that's really risky. Why would you do that? You don't know if this firm is going to survive. You don't know if it'll go under. And listen, when I was looking for a law firm, I was looking for lawyers I wanted to work for, lawyers that I wanted to come carry their briefcase and just, you know, the way Abraham Lincoln learned to be a lawyer was literally carrying a briefcase and studying and apprenticing under someone. That's still the best way to become a lawyer. And, and I remember the other clerk said, well, what if it goes bankrupt or, or like the, the lead uh, lawyer at the firm is a guy named Chuck Cooper, one of the top Supreme Court lawyers in the country, a very dear friend. And they said, well, you know, Chuck Cooper could become the U.S. Solicitor General in, in, in another Republican administration. He could become the top lawyer for the government for the United States in front of the Supreme Court. I remember thinking, A, okay, why is it a bad thing if your boss, when you're brand new and starting your career, goes on to become the top lawyer for the United States of America in the Supreme Court? And why would you want to work for someone who wouldn't be considered right. for that job? Right. And fine, if it's a little bitty law firm and it's nine months old, if they go bankrupt in a year, you know what? I felt confident I could get another job. Yeah. Like, like if there's any value to working your tail off and, 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 and trying to build some academic credentials and a history, it was like, look, I don't think I'm unemployable. Yeah. It, it took politics to make me unemployable. <laughs> <laughs> but, but that... I remember being fascinated at the mindset yep. of the clerks that they had worked so hard that risk terrified them. And I think you see that manifested at universities across the country, but I think the Ivy League, it, it is more intense because there's more fear of, of the risk and the uncertainty. I've seen exactly that. I remember it when I was in college, not, not I guess it was uh, 10 years ago now, but I, uh, as far as I can tell, visiting campuses, things remain the same. The students at these name brand schools. You know, 10 years ago, Joe Biden was vice president. <laughs> That's true. Oh, According to Obama, he still is. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good point. So, gosh, you're, now you're bringing me back to the worst memory I have in college. I just got there freshman year. I'm so we, excited. We don't need you to share all that uh, No, much. no, and it's not that one. It's not that one. Don't worry. No, I, I had just gotten here, and it was the 2008 election. And I thought, oh, this is going to be great. I'm going to have such a great time on campus. And then, then Obama wins. And 3,000 people, I don't know, thousands of people come out. They're celebrating. You see wafts of marijuana clouds coming up from the green. You see people drinking outside. And, and in, in a dorm on old campus, one of the freshman dorms, it's me and about six other Republicans just drinking vodka out of the handle, say, oh no, things, everything's going downhill. But I did notice this with the conservatives. It's on actually campus. very similar to your preparation routine for the podcast. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> if it ain't broke, don't fix it. You know, it's obviously worked a long time. 
I, I noticed this with the campus conservatives. They're, they're willing to wear the bow tie, generally. They're willing to go and advocate for lower taxes and deregulation, maybe even smaller government. But on a lot of, say, cultural issues, the issues that the ruling elite really don't want you to touch, they won't touch them either. They'll sometimes say things like, I'm a conservative, but I'm not that kind of a conservative. No, no, I'm still a fashionable one. And I think it's to protect the job at Goldman Sachs. I think it is that same risk aversion that you're describing. Look, I, I, I think you're right. And I think you see in the conservative world generally people being cautious and risk averse. And part of it is, look, everyone likes to be liked particularly young people. I mean, there's a reason peer pressure is a thing. Right. right. Um, you know, you're at college, you want to go out, you want to have a good time. You know, ideally, you'd like to find someone you think is attractive and, you know, see what happens. Uh, although I remember when I, I showed up as a college freshman, there was, there was a T-shirt that was popular. Uh, it, it said on the front, sex kills. And on the back, it said, come to Princeton, live forever. <laughs> there's a lot of truth to that. But, and look, people are, there is no doubt the positive peer pressure. When I was in school, when you were in school, but even more so today, that, that, that if you take an unpopular position, you risk being denigrated, you risk being ostracized. And so people opt at a minimum to, to just shut up about it. Yeah. To just say, you know what, I'm gonna keep my views quiet. Um, how you come through that, uh, I think, is one of the real testing aspects of education. Hmm. Right, right. Can you, can you withstand that? Or like the vast majority, do you just kind of go, along, go with the flow, go along with the crowd, and lose whatever principle you might have had? This does bring us to your colleagues, Senator. In the United States Senate, your Republican colleagues we have just confirmed a woman that you say is the most radical Supreme Court justice in the history of this country. I agree. The woman can't, well, sorry, uh, the person cannot tell you what a woman is. And she is supportive of critical race theory, talks about the founders of that movement by name. She has lauded the 1619 Project, which says America's evil from the very beginning. It's based on a false thesis about slavery. So this woman is very far to the left. And yet when I looked at the Senate confirmation hearings over, over who was grilling Katanji Jackson. It was you and Josh Hawley and Tom Cotton a little bit. And that was pretty much it. And all of the other Republican senators were sitting there twiddling their thumbs and in some cases actually encouraging this woman who's now the furthest left judge we've ever had on the court. What gives? Well, look, risk aversion doesn't end when you're 21. <laughs> uh, it doesn't end when you're in college. It doesn't end when you're in grad school. It doesn't end when you start your first job. And in the world of politics, if you dare to take on uh, the orthodoxy, you get demonized. Um, I promise you in the, what, 20 minutes we've been sitting here, there have been a thousand tweets telling me to go do things that are anatomically impossible. <laughs> um, Good night, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Look, it, it is, and if you're a Republican senator, 
it is not complicated that this nomination was an historic first. Hmm. Anytime a Republican opposes a Democratic Supreme Court nomination, you are certain to be vilified by the media. All the more so if that nominee happens to be the first African-American woman nominated to the court. It means going into it, you know to a certainty, if you say anything, if you say good morning, you'll be called a racist. Yeah. You'll be called a sexist. You'll be demonized. And, and look, today's Democrats, that's their opening line to begin with, yeah. no matter what you say. But in this context, I can tell you, among the Republican senators, most of them went into this nomination scared of their own shadow. They didn't want to be held up as the modern-day Klansman, which if you said any critical question, that was the attack that was coming. Yeah. On top of that, look, why is it we care about who's on the Supreme Court? This is something I, I care deeply about. I think a lot of Americans care deeply about it. The reason I believe we care about it is the Supreme Court has been the institution throughout history that has played the most pivotal role for protecting our fundamental rights, for protecting free speech, for protecting religious liberty, for protecting the right to keep and bear arms, for protecting our safety and security of our families from by ensuring the criminal laws are enforced. You know, this nomination was one that, that, that I'll confess, I felt conflicted about. I, I've known Katanji for 30 years. We were in law school together. Uh, we were one year apart in law school. We were on the Law Review together. She is someone that on a personal level, she's very smart, she's charming, she has an easy smile. Everybody who knows her likes her. But at the end of the day, a Supreme Court nomination is not about whether someone is smart or talented or whether you like them. It is about what their record are, what their record is, and what kind of job they will do in the position. And, and, and as I examined her record, I came to the conclusion that her record demonstrated that she will be the furthest left of any of the justices that have ever served on the court. Now, there's some people that want, actually, that to me is comforting. It's comforting that there are that many people applauding because that suggests that, that, that there's a wide difference of uh, opinion in this room. I think that's fantastic. I, I'm actually glad <laughs> for everyone who applauded there because if you're left of center, thank you for coming out. Thank you for being part of a conversation. If you're starting from a perspective that you don't agree with me, if you're starting from a perspective that you don't agree with Michael, then it is wonderfully and refreshingly open-minded that you're here and willing to have this conversation, that, 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 that you don't start uh, from the perspective of, I, I, I can't hear you. That's very positive, but I do think in the confirmation of now Justice Jackson, her record was, was far out of the mainstream. And, and it's worth pointing out, too, because now President Biden is trying to suggest that this was the most vicious attack on any Supreme Court nominee in history. 
when Brett Kavanaugh was up, they called him a gang rapist without any evidence whatsoever. And because of the testimony of a woman who contradicted herself many times and whose testimony was contradicted by everyone who was even supposedly around her at the time, by another woman who certainly never met Brett Kavanaugh ever, and by a felon lawyer who's currently doing time for wire fraud. So, what did what, CNN said he could be the, the Democratic presidential nominee. You're right. A felon lawyer who may still become the Democrat nominee someday. And so you had that. With the Katanji Jackson confirmation process, you, Senator, and a couple of your colleagues just quoted her court opinions. Yeah, you know, it reminds me of one of my favorite podcasts you and I did was, uh, oh, over a year ago with a fellow named Eric Weinstein, yeah. who's a very bright man, brilliant man, uh, but he's politically left of center. And we had a long pod with a pretty vigorous discussion on lots of issues. But I remember the topic of Supreme Court nominations came up, and, and, and he made a point. He said, well, they're nasty, but everybody does it. Both sides do it. You know, it's just the nature of politics. And, and as you'll recall, and by the way, I'd encourage you, that's, that's a fun podcast to go back and listen to because we had some very... I think substantive discussions and disagreements, respectful and civil, but the point I made to him is I said, look, that's not true. If you look at the really nasty confirmations, the confirmations that got personal and ugly, it's only one party that does this. Whether it was Robert Bork, whether it was Clarence Thomas, or whether it was Brett Kavanaugh, it has been the Democrats that go into the gutter with the kind of personal attacks that those confirmation hearings featured. And, and Republicans have not, and, and I don't believe will, engaged in that. Before you know. we get to the wonderful leftists in the room who will get a chance to ask questions and perhaps try to refute things that we've said, we, we always have this rule, if you disagree with us, you get to cut to the front of the line. This really doesn't jibe with my authoritarian tendencies, but we deal with it. We let it happen. It's fine. It's fine. So we will get to that. Before that, though, I do want to close out this, uh, this issue of the confirmation. Where was the conservative movement? So look, it, it, it's a very good question. Uh, this past week, I, I sat down with a number of leaders of the conservative movement, and I got to say the movement, most of the, the, the organizations right of center were largely absent from the fight over, over Katanji Brown Jackson. And I think the reasons were a couple of fold. Um, one, I think conservative groups and organizations, just like a lot of Republican senators, were terrified of being vilified uh, for daring to oppose the first African-American woman nominated to the court. So they, were, they didn't want to have the fight. Secondly, there is a reasoning that many people found persuasive, which is that Justice Jackson was nominated to replace Stephen Breyer. Stephen Breyer is a left of center justice. And so the argument went, you're replacing one left of center justice for another. It doesn't change the underlying balance of power on the court, so it's not worth the fight. Hmm. Now, I'm not convinced that's right. I, I will say of the left-leaning justices on the court, uh, Breyer has been the most conservative of the liberals, which is not to say remotely conservative. Right. But to give an example, you know, one of the cases that, that I litigated when I was Solicitor General of Texas was a case called Van Orden versus, versus Texas. Uh, Van Orden versus Perry, rather. And Van Orden versus Perry was challenging the display of the Ten Commandments monument on the state capitol grounds. 
And that case went all the way to the Supreme Court. At the end of the day, the Supreme Court upheld Texas's monument by a vote of five to four. Now, what's interesting in that case is I had spent thousands of hours getting ready for that case, and, and we'd written our brief trying to really just mind meld with Sandra Day O'Connor, who Justice O'Connor at the time was the swing vote on the court. And so I tried to put every argument. In fact, I, you know, I, one of the lawyers in my office asked, they said, Ted, is it possible to be too obsequious to Justice O'Connor? <laughs> And I said, no, no, Certainly it is not. not. <laughs> I, 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 I want the most common words in this brief to be O'Connor, comma, J. I want the more common than and or the. And if we can put an oil portrait of Justice O'Connor on the cover of our brief, I think better. that would be tasteful and appropriate. Well, I tried to pitch those, all of those arguments. Every argument I aimed at Justice O'Connor missed. And she voted to strike down the monument. And yet, amazingly, the arguments that I aimed at Justice O'Connor found fertile ground with Stephen Breyer, and Justice Breyer was our necessary fifth vote. We won 5-4 because Steve Breyer voted to uphold the Texas Ten Commandments monument. Now, I will say we were replacing who was the most conservative of the left-leaning justices, with a justice who I believe, and to be honest, you can only assess these things after a decade or two, so we'll know uh, sometime in the future whether this prediction is right, but based on her record, I think she will prove to be the furthest left of those justices. That's a meaningful shift, but I gotta tell you, it was amazing. So we're engaged in this confirmation hearing, and normally in, in a judicial confirmation hearing, particularly a Supreme Court fight, there's an ecosystem on right and left that rise up. So when Brett Kavanaugh was nominated, there's all these left-leaning groups that are funded with millions of dollars that are attacking him, that are funding attacks, by the way, that are sending protesters to Washington to show up in the hearing and scream and yell and, and yell at, at senators in elevators. There, there's a, an elevator we call the Jeff Flake Memorial Elevator <laughs> because it's where these protesters who were on the payroll yeah. uh, of, of a leftist organization screamed at him. Um, I'm glad that you didn't see conservatives hiring people just to scream and yell and throw a fit. But they also engage in research, and what was fascinating, so when the issue about her lenient sentences came up, the first response that, that Democrats had was, well, a lot of federal judges sentence defendants, particularly defendants in child pornography cases, to below the federal sentencing guidelines. And that argument is actually a reasonable argument. If you look just at the first iteration of the back and forth, they had a reasonable point with some, some real basis for it. The next iteration of the argument, however, was she was not just sentencing below the guideline. She was sentencing far, far, far below uh, what the prosecutor was asking for in, e in each case. Every case where she had discretion, she went way below the prosecutor. And then as we're talking about it um, amidst uh, Republican senators, several uh, Republican senators asked the question, well, how does her sentencing compare to other federal judges across the country? It's a good question. It was a reasonable question. Um, I asked my team initially, I said, look, surely someone is doing comprehensive research on a record. This ought to be available. So my team reached out to 
the likely organizations that would be doing this research. Nobody done any research. You know that it, had the situation been reversed, the left would have a dossier five inches thick. And they did. They did for Neil Gorsuch. They, they did for Amy Coney Barrett. They, they did for Brett Kavanaugh. For all three, massive amounts of money were spent. The failure of the conservative movement. The movement it, did nothing to inform anyone of the facts of this very disturbing the, the case. The movement should have come up with all the fodder for the tough questions. Now, speaking of tough questions. I want to get some tough questions from the audience. Shall we bring out our friend Liz Wheeler to field the questions? Absolutely. Let's do it. Welcome back. Thank you, thank you. I just want to say, I noticed that when you were throwing the merch out at the beginning, the hats and the shirts, that you didn't have enough for the whole audience. So I just want to let everyone know, if you use my promo code LIVE, you can get 10% off Shameless. on The Verdict with tedcruise.com um, slash shop on the merch store. This is what we call a shameless plug. Mm -hmm. By the way, I Liz, I got to say, one of the coolest things that's set up here that I just saw shortly before we started filming is somehow we've gotten to be able to project the cactus on the wall, which yeah. I just think is, is really cool. We've never done that before, so yeah. whoever came up with that, that was very <laughs> clever. They're going to paint it afterward as a monument to this show. Uh, I, and our I visit, think that's I think, right, yeah. and then we'll all be prosecuted for vandalism. <laughs> I think it's very complimentary to the chandelier look. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so are we ready for some questions? Yes. And the rule really does stand. I know I joked sincerely about how much I hate the rule, but if you disagree with us, you really are allowed to cut to the front of the line. So just indicate that up there, and we look forward to hearing from you. William F. Buckley Jr. used to say a conservative is someone who stands athwart history yelling stop. Does this definition still apply to today's political climate? Ooh, good question. Something that is misunderstood about that statement is he was speaking about history with a capital H. He was speaking about the Marxist conception of history as a science that can be known with certainty. And it, it comes from a popular line from the left, which is, I have seen the future and it works. And so Buckley is responding to that and saying, no, whatever you think the future is, we are going to stand athwart that yelling stop. And so the, the statement is perfectly right in as much as Buckley is saying in the 1950s, the conservative is one who is stopping communism. And he brought together a coalition of three disparate groups. The traditionalists who hated the iconoclasm and atheism of the Soviet Union, the libertarians who hated the collectivism, and the, the war hawk Democrats, for lack of a better word, the people who hated the USSR's imperial ambitions. And those three groups didn't have a whole lot in common, but they had a common enemy. And so they fought the Soviet Union, and they won. I mean, for all that we knock that coalition today, it was successful, and it did win the Cold War. So I think he was perfectly right at the time to say that. The Berlin Wall fell 30 years ago, and conservatives who were just playing reruns of the 1980s on YouTube, frankly, I myself sometimes do it as, as, as comfort food, you know? I'm, I go in on a cozy night and play old Reagan clips, but that isn't going to cut it. I, I, but, I'm confident with your wife, that's very romantic. It's so romantic. <laughs> Say, honey, just one more, please. You know, <laughs> Ronald Reagan and Bill Buckley fought their battles, and now they're resting. Let them rest. Don't dig up their bodies and try to revivify them. Learn from them. I mean, that's something that we're, we're trying to do here at the Buckley program, right? The William F. Buckley Jr. program at Yale isn't about playing the hits from the 80s or the 70s or the 60s. It's about applying timeless principles and an understanding of the conservative tradition to the real circumstances today. 
So, Michael, I have to say I'm deeply disappointed <laughs> that we are in New Haven, Connecticut. Mm -hmm. We're at your alma mater. Mm -hmm. You just got asked a question about William Buckley. And you sat up straight. Yep, no, you're right. And argued in plain, clearly enunciated English. Could you try it again and answer it appropriately? Uh, well, I'll be joined for the full hour today by <laughs> Senator Ted Cruz. If I do not do my William F. Buckley Jr. impression, <laughs> he will smash me in my damn face. I will stay plastered to. Does that do it? Very nice. Is that, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. And this is demonstration, before he became a podcaster, Michael was a frustrated actor. Mm -hmm. And before that, half a wasp. So I've been, you know, I've been trying my blue blood accent for a while. Yep. All right, our next question is actually going to be from Verdict Plus. If you are a subscriber on Verdict Plus, this community, you get exclusive access to ask the senator questions, not just, uh, not just at live events, but on a regular basis. That's where we also host the cloakroom. So this next question is uh, from username Godzilla Rules. This is the question, Senator. <laughs> I, I picked it because of the question, I promise, not because of the username. That was just part of it. Senator, if Republicans take the House, who would be the speaker? It's a good right. question. I think the answer probably will be Kevin McCarthy. Um, I will say this, I stay out of speaker elections. Uh, I've got enough battles on the Senate side of things. Um, you know, back uh, when I arrived in the Senate, uh, John Boehner was the speaker. Boehner and I- uh, Good let, friends. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> let, 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 let me just, just say we had pretty significant dis differences of opinion, to put it mildly. Um, I think it is likely that McCarthy, if there's a majority, will be speaker. Now, it's not clear he will stay speaker. Uh, the job of speaker of the House is a very difficult job. It is like herding cats. Uh, there is wide disagreement among Republicans, and I think uh, if there's discontent in the ranks, he could be replaced, but I think given that he's been Republican leader in the minority, given that he's working very hard to take the majority, I would be surprised if House Republicans didn't at least give him the first crack at leading, and if he does a good job, then, then presumably he'll stay speaker. Well, conservative critics would say that he leans to establishment and that he's not based enough. What say you to? I, I love, Liz, how you phrase that. You know, some conservative critics might say. <laughs> you know, conservative critics whose name rhyme with Wiz Leeler. Perhaps. <laughs> That's the fun part of moderating the questions, yeah. is I get to throw my own in. So look, I, I have been through now multiple Republican leaders in the House. When I arrived, it was John Boehner. Uh, Boehner loathed conservatives. Um, there are conservatives in the House, and it was interesting because he had started out as a relatively conservative House member before he began climbing the rungs of leadership. But, but by the time he was speaker, I would, in, I would encounter House Republicans who would just tell me about, he'd walk up to them at the, on the floor and just say F you, like to their face. <laughs> um, and, and Boehner's kind of an uh, interesting fellow in that he's had all sorts of interesting things to say about me. He's described me as Lucifer in the flesh. <laughs> um, he's described me as the most miserable son of a bitch he's ever worked with. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the irony is I've never worked with him. <laughs> so I don't know John Boehner. My whole life I have not spoken 50 words to Boehner. So it, it's kind of a curious thing. And so he, he came out with a book recently that, that 
I think nobody read. Um, <laughs> although when he was recording his video for it, he did a video of the audio book, and he's drinking copious amounts of red wine and chain smoking. <laughs> and in the middle of the video, he's reading a segment of the book completely unrelated, and he looks in the camera and says, F you, Ted Cruz, <laughs> like in the middle of the video. And so a friend of mine gave me this book. It may have been the one per copy purchased. <laughs> um, and so I did what's called the Washington Read. So the Washington Read is you take a book, you go look in the index to see what they say about you, and you go skim through <laughs> to figure out what it is. So I did that, said, all right, let's see what, the, what he has to say. And what was fascinating, he actually describes why he loathes me so much. And he said, look, when Cruz arrived in, in January of 2013, he said the crazies among the House Republicans, by which he means the conservatives, they had been largely beaten down. And Cruz got there, and he convinced them suddenly they believed they could fight for something. Suddenly they believed they could do something. And he said, and that made my life miserable. <laughs> So that was Boehner when it started. Ultimately, I think he was so antagonistic to conservatives, it cost him the speakership. He was toppled, ultimately. The next speaker was Paul Ryan. Paul Ryan was substantially less antagonistic to conservatives than Boehner. Now, Paul had been in Washington a long time. Paul had been, when he arrived, he was a young Turk charging the castle, and I think after 20 years, the Paul Ryan, 20 years into it, was very different from the Paul Ryan who had at first arrived in Washington. But Paul had a better relationship with conservatives in the House. He was no longer one of them, but it was less actively antagonistic than Boehner had been. You now have McCarthy, and McCarthy, it's interesting. I think ideologically, Kevin is the most moderate of the three. If you actually look at where Kevin's personal views are, he's the least conservative of the three. But he also is the least antagonistic to House conservatives. Hmm. And, and right now, I would say House conservatives get along with him pretty well. Now, in some ways, it's easier to get along with the leader of, of House Republicans when you're in the minority. When you're in the minority and everyone's voting no, there are fewer fracture lines for disagreement. Yep. I think we're more likely to find disagreement next year if we see Republican majorities in both houses. Look, the singular cause of the disagreements I've had with Mitch McConnell, and Mitch and I have battled like crazy in the Senate, the major cause of those has been on the question of how much can we stand up and fight the agenda, whether a Barack Obama or Joe Biden. And so with, with McCarthy, I think time will tell how he navigates those waters. I'm less concerned about where he personally is ideologically, and I'm more concerned, if and when he becomes speaker, with how he leads. And whether, I'm a big believer when you got the majority, you gotta do something with it. Doesn't mean you fight everything. If you fight everything, you're fighting nothing. But it does mean that you pick some issues that matter, that you care about, and you stand up and fight and make a difference. And I think if Kevin does that, he'll be more likely to keep the job. And if he doesn't, uh, he may not. Right. My name is Maya Cook. 
Um, good evening, Senator Cruz. Thank you so much for coming to Yale this evening. And I think in the spirit of the Buckley Program's celebration of intellectual diversity, I wanted to take a moment to celebrate our newest addition to the Supreme Court of the US, who I know we've already talked about, Justice Jackson. Since you're here tonight, though, in the name of fostering intellectual diversity in academic spaces, it would appear to me that you already recognize the importance of new perspectives. And as a young woman, seeing Justice Jackson on the Supreme Court is invigorating, truly. And on Tuesday, it baffled me that you would ask such flagrantly racist questions um, to this exceedingly well-qualified candidate. Your colleagues in the GOP promised a respectful and dignified hearing for Justice Jackson, and to me, you did not uphold this. So today I wanted to create a space where you might be able to challenge your own thinking as prudent scholars often do. So I'm here to ask you, what are two nice comments you can give about recent nominee Justice Jackson's judicial experience besides from she has an easy smile? Yeah, you racist, what's the comment? <laughs> Well, let me start by thanking you for being here and thank you for asking a substantive, uh, important question. Thank you for engaging in a conversation. I think we all would be better off if we engage in substantive conversations. There's a lot to praise uh, about Judge Jackson. Uh, she is very, very bright. She is very, very accomplished. Uh, she is very talented. Uh, she has an impressive and inspiring personal story. I, I will say, sitting listening to her opening remarks where she described her personal story, she described her parents' journey, I, you had to be dead not to be inspired by that journey. And, and, and listen, I will say more broadly, if you look at the history of our country, if you look at, at the history of our country on race, it is absolutely inspiring to see an African-American woman serving on the Supreme Court. I will also point out that when it comes to issues of race, I think both the press and the modern left uh, are hypocritical on this question. That they only define someone as black or they only define someone as Hispanic if they agree with them ideologically. So Clarence Thomas has been on the court for decades. Clarence Thomas is a black man. The left hates him. They despise Clarence Thomas. And I'll tell you, by the way, the treatment of Clarence Thomas on the left is markedly different than, say, Antonin Scalia. Antonin Scalia was brilliant. He and Justice Thomas were every bit as conservative. And yet the vitriol that was heaped on Clarence Thomas um, nasty, racist language from the left. Um, there was one magazine cover that, 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 that showed Clarence Thomas as an Uncle Tom sitting at, at Scalia's feet. I think it was racist and disgusting. And, and listen, I will say this as an Hispanic man. As an Hispanic man, Jorge Ramos went on, on television in Spanish and described me as a traitor to my race for daring... <laughs> that says something about the view of the left, that they're telling you, you have one way to, to view things and one way only. And if you don't, we'll demonize and attack you. So look, and, and by the way, in terms of having the first African-American woman on the Supreme Court, 
there was an opportunity for this to happen 20 years ago. There's a judge named Janice Rogers Brown. Janice Rogers Brown was a Supreme Court justice on the California Supreme Court. George W. Bush nominated Janice Rogers Brown to the D.C. Circuit. At the beginning of, beginning of his presidency, he, he nominated Judge Brown to the D.C. Circuit. The Democrats filibustered Judge Brown. That filibuster was led by a guy named Joe Biden. It also included people like Chuck Schumer. It included Pat Leahy, included Dianne Feinstein. They filib the reason they filibustered Judge Janet Janice Rogers Brown is because she was a black woman, but she was also conservative. And they did not want her to go to the Supreme Court. And they succeeded in filibusting her. They delayed her nomination for a couple of years until it finally went through. She finally went to the D.C. Circuit. Now, everyone who was harumphing in the media that if you oppose an African-American woman who's a qualified judge, you're a racist, precisely zero of them thought it was racist to, for Democrats, including Joe Biden, to filibuster Janice Rogers Brown. By the way, there was another nominee that Bush put forward, a guy named Miguel Estrada. Uh, Miguel is an incredibly qualified Supreme Court advocate. He was nominated the D.C. Circuit as well. The Democrats filibustered him. If you read the memos that were leaked from Ted Kennedy's lawyers, here's what Ted Kennedy's lawyers said about Miguel Estrada. They said, we must stop him, quote, because he is Hispanic. That's what Ted Kennedy's lawyers said in writing. Now, I'm going to suggest to you, if you oppose somebody because of their race, that is the definition of racist. And look, I'll point out in your question, you said that my questioning of Judge Jackson was you used the term racist. Listen, racism is a horrific evil in this country. It is also an insult that the left tosses around casually. I would welcome, if you look at the questions I asked Judge Jackson, every single question I asked her concerned her record. Either her record, record as a judge, sentencing defendants before her, or her record writing academic materials and law reviews, or her record giving speeches to law schools. All of that is the job of, of the Senate in, in the advice and consent process. And so respectfully, I could not disagree more deeply when you say it is racist to examine a judge based on their record. If the Democrats wanted to oppose Janice Rogers Brown because they oppose conservatives, you know, do you think the Democrats were all sexist when they voted party line against Amy Coney Barrett? I, I'm willing to bet you don't, because she's not a liberal woman. So you can't have it both ways, which is that when a Democratic nominee has a certain characteristic, anyone who opposes them is racist or sexist or what have you, but when a Republican nominee has those characteristics, it's open season and you can go after them full force and... and the left is righteous in doing so. It, 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 the standard should be the same, and I'm going to suggest what the standard should be, is we should examine people based on their actual record 
and whether and to what extent that record demonstrates they will defend the constitutional rights of all Americans. I think that's what people care about. Mika, Mika, I do want to add one thing. As a, as a young professional woman similar to you, I, I do want to speak to... I wouldn't to get called a young professional. <laughs> <laughs> However you identify. Um, I do think it's important to look at exactly what happened with Ketanji Brown-Jackson as it relates to the progress that women have made in our country. And by that, I mean how Joe Biden has taken us backwards in the progress that we have made moving away from sexism. Because when conservatives say that Ketanji Brown-Jackson was nominated by Joe Biden because of her race and because of her gender, we're not inferring that. Joe Biden said that himself. He said he was going to nominate someone because she was a woman and because she was a black woman. And as women, ourselves, as minorities, this should be extremely insulting to us. It reduces us to tokens. It, it, it is tokenism. It's racial tokenism and it's, it's sexism. And this is, this is the fundamental problem with the idea of equity, right? It leaves women wondering, did I get the job based on my qualifications and my resume, or did I get the job because I am part of a gender quota, because I have been reduced to my genitalia? And so I, I would challenge young women to reject what Joe Biden has done. I would challenge young women to acknowledge that this is actually racial discrimination and gender discrimination, and the people who lose the most are women who not only are they left to wonder about themselves, their coworkers and their colleagues are also left to wonder, did this woman, did this black woman achieve what she achieved based on her merits or because of the color of her skin or her gender? Uh, hello, um, my name is Evan. Um, assuming that would end global hunger, would you fillet another man? <laughs> Well, actually, so I, I do have an answer to this. All right, I, I actually think it is better that the Yaley answer this. <laughs> you know, there was a line in there was a line in American Psycho about that Yale thing. I think that's what our questioner is alluding to. Uh, like a like a typical left wing undergraduate, you are engaging in consequentialist ethics. You are attempting to justify flagrantly immoral behavior to achieve a good end. And, and I tell you, my friend, the ends do not justify the means. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely not. I, I am curious with that young fellow, if it would solve world hunger, would you vote for Donald Trump? <laughs> All right. Hello, Senator Cruz. Um, my name is Priya and I'm a community college transfer student and current undergrad junior at Yale. Um, are you aware of the radical left protests occurring on the popular mobile game Among Us? What are you doing to protect our youth from this and other online indoctrination? So I'll confess I'm not and, and uh, <laughs> you don't say. Um, all right, so Among Us, I've played it a couple of times with my daughters. <laughs> Um, and, and it's sort of fun, but, but if there's a, a radical protest on it, I, I don't know about it. You, you um, always surprise me. I haven't even heard of this, and you're totally hip to the jive of this game. Well, wow. you know, it, um, uh, you know, when you have a 13-year-old and an 11-year-old, and, and look, I, I grew up 
driving from LaGuardia to Yale, I played video games the whole way here. So, so, but I did not play Among Us. So, so if there is a, a protest, I, I don't know about it. All right, our next question I could pretend is from Verdict Plus, but it's actually my question. Mm. I want to hear your discussion of this topic. There was a piece that was published today by David French mm. regarding the anti-groomer bill, the parental rights and education bill in Florida. The left calls it the don't say gay bill. He accuses conservatives of being anti-free speech. In fact, he calls conservatives hypocrites for trying to control what teachers are instructing children in the classroom, given that conservatives generally support free speech. So my question to both of you is, are conservatives hypocrites when it comes to these parental rights and education bills? Are, are we laws? hypocrites because we don't want the kindergarten teachers to trans the kids? That's the question. Yes. Okay. Uh, I don't think so. I don't think it's in the free speech tradition of America to preach transgenderism to five-year-olds. I have a test. It's the what would Washington do test. If you talk to the founding fathers, you said, uh, do, you, do you believe that you founded this country to protect the sacred right of weirdos to indoctrinate five-year-olds into transgenderism and other assorted ideologies? I don't think they would have said, yes, by golly, that's why we fought the revolution. Uh, what, what about slavery? I don't think they're teaching a lot about slavery in kindergarten, which is prob probably a good thing, but... Uh, what would the founding fathers have to say about slavery? What would the founding fathers... Well, no, that's a good question, that is actually. actually that, that, that's that, a very that's good question. What would the founding fathers say about slavery? Well, you want to repeat it just because it wasn't yes. in the microphone so the, folks at home can hear The question was, what would the founding fathers say about slavery? And uh, frankly, the answer is we'd be here all night because a lot of them uh, vigorously oppose slavery. Some of them own slaves. Some of the ones who own slaves recognize the moral problem of slavery and wanted to end it, and they set up ways for it to end and through the Constitution, and there were vigorous debates. The country almost fell apart. We almost didn't get a Constitution because of that issue. So the answer is it's complicated and would be interesting. But that wasn't the question I was asked. The question on, on uh, David French saying that conservatives are hypocrites regarding free speech because we don't, we don't want kindergartners learning about transgenderism is silly to me because, one, Kindergarten classrooms are not exactly a rollicking free marketplace of ideas where we're discovering new scientific uh, technologies and things like that. No, you're learning your ABCs. But furthermore, even on this issue of academic freedom, there, there, is, there, there is no right of a teacher to teach whatever that teacher wants in a classroom, specifically to, to kindergartners. It's funny to hear that kind of a question here at the William F. Buckley Jr. program. The conservative movement was founded with a book called God and Man at Yale. Everyone remembers the title. Few people remember the subtitle, which is the superstitions of academic freedom, which he put in scare quotes. He said that academic freedom is a hoax, that it's a superstition that was merely instrumental for the left to get rid of all of the old norms. He quotes the former Yale president, Charles Seymour, who says that skepticism has utility only when it leads to conviction. Later on, Bill Buckley was having a debate with Leo Churn on firing line. Buckley said, I do not want a more open society. I want the society to be considerably more closed. He, he used the phrase epistemological optimism, uh, by which he meant that we can know certain things. We can settle certain things. And, and uh, he, Buckley said he had felt no desire to protect the rights of a Nazi or of a communist. Uh, David French infamously defended Drag Queen Story Hour uh, on the suggestion that uh, if we don't protect the right of drag queens to jiggle around for little kids, then by
by golly, they might not let us go to church on Sundays. And uh, well, first of all, the left has prevented us from going to church on Sundays for about the past two years uh, with the COVID lockdowns. But, but even beyond that, if, if we can't tell the difference between twerking for little kids in skimpy outfits at the library and a pastor preaching the gospel on Sunday, then we do not possess the rational faculties and the moral conscience to govern ourselves. So I've got a different take on the matter, and and one of the the reasons this podcast uh, can be interesting and fun is is that Michael and I have uh, fairly different worldviews. Uh, Michael is very Burkean. Uh, he is very comfortable with tradition. He is very comfortable with lack of change. Um, <laughs> I was amazed to see you disagree in any way with with Buckley standing athwart, and by the way, athwart's a word used far too rarely in life, uh, uh, athwart history yelling stop. Um, I'm far more libertarian. Um, I am far more live and let live. Uh, When it comes to free speech, I embrace free speech, and I embrace free speech not just for people I agree with, but for people I disagree with. Um, I embrace free speech, you know, you mentioned for Nazis and communists. I think Nazis and communists have free speech rights. Now, reasonable people ought to disagree with Nazis and communists. We, we ought to battle them with more free speech. But I very much agree with, with John Stuart Mill that the best cure for bad speech is more speech. And, and so, so I... I I think academic freedom actually matters, and even academic freedom for people who are nutty. That being said, though, I think the Florida law and the other states that are considering laws is is markedly different, which is that if a state is going to have a public school system, it's going to set curriculum that is inherent in the process of having a school system. And if you're setting curriculum, you're making a choice of what is included in the curriculum and what is excluded in the curriculum. And making that choice is not in and of itself a violation of free speech. You're necessarily sorting what do we think it is imperative that our kids learn. And, and, and the Florida bill, you know, it was interesting, the, the opponents of the bill, they dubbed it the don't say gay bill. And yet the bill provided that, that for kids that were pre-kindergarten through third grade, that you should not discuss questions of sexuality. Look, pre-kindergarten kids are three and four years old. And, and, and I think it is perfectly reasonable for a state to say, we want kids in pre-K and K to be learning reading and writing and arithmetic, and they shouldn't be talking about sex. And by the way, I don't want straight teachers talking about straight sex to four-year-olds. <laughs> no sex in kindergarten. Like, like, you know, kids go go to kindergarten to learn to play bo- blocks, to learn to get some basic education. And by the way, the Florida law ended at third grade. At fourth grade, it was, hey, Katie, bar the door. You know, you know, bring out the S and M. Let's get explicit. So apparently, at age nine, all was good. But prior to age nine, I and what's fascinating, I think the cultural left jumped the shark on this. Hmm. Because you saw many political Democrats, you saw the corporate media all excited, don't say gay. You saw Hollywood 
all chanting gay, 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 which I got to say is not an act of bravery to chant gay in Hollywood. <laughs> Mandatory, actually, um, but it is. But what's interesting is if you look at the polling of, of parents of Floridians who, who read the terms of this law, which is let's not teach little bitty kids about sex, the overwhelming majority of Floridians agreed with it, including the majority of Democrats in Florida. So it, it's the cultural elites who are like, how dare you silence these brave truth tellers? You can do all the brave, brave truth telling you want outside of the kindergarten classroom. Yep. Now, as usual, we're running extremely late. This is uh, every episode of the show. But before we go, well, I do want to get to one more question. Yeah, let's do two more questions. Two more questions. We'll do this gentleman right. and whoever's next in line. Go ahead, sir. Thank you. Uh, hello, Senator Cruz. Thanks for coming out. I really appreciate you being here, making the trip. Uh, my name is Jamark Simon, and my question for you, Senator Cruz, is, so according to the Texas Tribune, you refused to certify the Arizona uh, presidential election results, um, but most re Republicans, like Mitch McConnell, uh, have admitted that Joe Biden won. Um, do you think Joe Biden legitimately won the 2020 election? Uh, why or why not? Okay, great question. Look, Joe Biden is indisputably the president of the United States today. Now, there are those in the media world that love to go around to Republicans and ask variants of the following question. Do you agree the 2020 election was fair and straight and everything was above board? And the answer to that is no. In the 2020 election, there were widespread allegations of voter fraud. If you looked at polling at the time, 39% of Americans, nearly half, believed the election had been stolen. That is very disturbing for anyone that wants to see the American people have faith in our democratic system. Um, as we were going to January 6th under, under, under legislation called the Electoral Count Act, if a House member and a senator objects to the counting of electoral votes. The two chambers split up into separate chambers. We have two hours of debate, and we vote on it. And I spent days and weeks struggling about how to vote. And, and here was my thinking as I struggled with it. If I vote no, if I vote against an objection, that will be heard and that will be understood by tens of millions of Americans as my saying, voter fraud isn't real, it doesn't exist, it's not a real problem. And that is not what I believe, that is emphatically the opposite of what I believe. So I didn't like that option. On the other hand, to simply object to the certification of the election because your guy didn't win, because the candidate you're supporting didn't win, I think that's completely unprincipled and indefensible. So I didn't like that option. And so I'm looking at these two options going, both of these options suck. So I did what lawyers often do, which is try to study history to see if, if there are any precedents from which we can draw insight. And as I studied history, I focused in particular on the presidential election of 1876. That was an election between Rutherford B. Hayes and Samuel Tilden. Now, in that election, it was a very close election. It was a, it was a nasty, divisive election. 
In that election, there were serious allegations of voter fraud in three different states. And what did Congress do facing that, those allegations of voter fraud? Congress didn't throw their hands in the air and say, okay, there's nothing we can do, this is terrible, but we're powerless, oh well. That's not what Congress did. What Congress did is they appointed what they called an electoral commission. It consisted of five House members, five senators, and five Supreme Court justices. And that electoral commission conducted an audit of the election results in the three challenge states and examined the actual evidence and made determinations about the allegations of voter fraud. The more I looked at it, the better that precedent seemed to me. And so as we were heading into January 1st, I was headed back to D.C. Initially, I was just going to announce this is what I think we should do. And I'd actually typed up a, a two-page statement. I was on Southwest Airlines flying from Houston back to D.C. and with my laptop, typed up a two-page statement. But then as I thought about it, I, I, I decided, you know, it would be better not to do this alone, but to try to assemble a coalition uh, together. And so I began visiting with other senators, and in the next 24 hours, a total of 11 senators joined together, and we put out a joint statement in which we said we were going to object to the results of the election in order to call for the appointment of an election commission to conduct an emergency 10-day audit. Now, if that happens on January 6th, it means the audit could be completed before January 20th, so it wouldn't delay the inauguration, and have a determination on the allegations of voter fraud. I continue to believe if Congress had done this, you would have much greater confidence in the election. And as I stood on the Senate floor, and you can watch, I gave a five-minute speech on the Senate floor advocating for this, I turned to the Democrats and I said, look, all of you insist on t TV, there is no voter fraud, it doesn't exist. Well, if you're right, you should welcome the election commission because presumably if the evidence doesn't back up the claims, that's what the commission will determine. And you know, Senator, there is actually one other historical tidbit here. I know you, you mentioned the first caveman election where they elected the Grand Poobah. Joe Biden was actually at that election. Did you know that? <laughs> he, was, he was in the caveman Senate. And, no, and it seems, this seems like a, a uh, reasonable proposal that, that you're describing. And uh, it, it, continues to be, uh, it, it continues to be trotted out in the media as evidence that, that Republicans don't accept election results. There is another irony to that, which is a poll some months ago showed that a higher percentage of Democrats don't believe the results of the 2016 election than Republicans disbelieve the results of the 2020 election. It, it is true Hillary Clinton went all over the country saying the election was stolen, the election was <laughs> stolen. Stacey Abrams still says she is the sitting governor of Georgia. <laughs> and president of Earth, too, according to Star Trek. Okay, that, that's true. All right, that was just annoying. <laughs> All right, let's do one, one final question. Thank you, sir. Uh, Senator Cruz, um, thank you for coming. My name is Nicola Ryan Schreiber. And in the year 1971, the U.S. moved off the gold standard. And ever since, the centralization of power um, around the ability to print money has been the greatest power essentially on Earth. And power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And what I have been uh, dismayed to see was that is that most uh, conservatives where they claim to say that they want smaller government, but the moment that they have their hand on the money printer, they let money printer go burr. And this is consistent in the last 50 years. 
And so I'm curious now, with the creation of the hardest money that has ever been created, Bitcoin, how would you feel about moving to a Bitcoin standard? So look, that, that is a great question, and thank you for that question. Uh, let me take a couple of pieces of it. There's no doubt that when the United States moved off the gold standard, it facilitated a massive inflation of our currency. It made it easier for government to print money. And for politicians, look, it's actually easy to reach a bipartisan deal in Washington. The way you do it is you sit down with everyone in the room and we say, we'll spend a billion for you, billion for you, billion for you, billion for you, you get to a trillion and you're done. <laughs> and on that deal, you get all the Democrats and you get half to two thirds of the Republicans. And in the Senate, there are consistently about 20 of us who object to excessive spending, who try to fight for spending restraint, but sadly, you often see the vote about 80 to 20. Um, the massive spending in Washington is what is fueling the inflation that is hurting the American people so profoundly right now. And it is one of the things that is fueling the move to Bitcoin. And, and as you may know, I am a huge proponent of Bitcoin. I'm a huge proponent of cryptocurrency. I think it is an incredibly important innovation. I think one of the reasons, I personally am an investor in Bitcoin. Uh, one of the reasons that you are seeing people move to Bitcoin is exactly what you said as, as a hedge to inflation. That Bitcoin, by design, cannot go over 21 million Bitcoin. It's a finite sum, and at the end of the day, a currency is a means of exchange and a way of setting value of one item vis-a-vis -vis another item. And, you know, one of the ways to understand inflation is if an apple is a dollar and a banana is two dollars, and you double the number of dollars on planet Earth, then roughly speaking, you would expect the apple to be two dollars and the banana to be four dollars. Now, the math doesn't work out exactly the same, but that's the principle, is that currency gives the relative values of one good or service vis-a-vis -vis another. When you have politicians devaluing everyone's goods and services, they look for other ways to store value. It's why people in times of inflation are drawn to gold or drawn to silver or drawn to real estate or commodities, other hard assets uh, as it hedges to inflation. So I am a big proponent of Bitcoin. I think the single greatest threat to Bitcoin and crypto is Washington politicians screwing it up. And it is a very real threat. You asked if I would support our going to it as, as legal tender. Look, I'm not looking for the government to make the choice to supplant the dollar. I know there are a lot in the Bitcoin community that believe it will inevitably go that way. And if it does, I'm fine with that too. Uh, but I don't think you should have a government mandate to make it so, but I think it is important I think the Bitcoin community and the crypto community writ large is an incredibly blossoming industry. China just shut it down. Texas is becoming ground zero for Bitcoin and crypto. I want to welcome everyone to Texas. And I think, I actually think the Bitcoin world is at a fork in the road an awful lot like big tech was about 15 years ago. Where big tech in Silicon Valley, it could have gone one road to being a libertarian utopia, leave me alone, 
let us be free and innovate, or it could have gone the road it chose, which is a woke, scolding, censoring, socialist mob. And unfortunately, it chose the latter. My hope is that Bitcoin and crypto, crypto chooses the former. And so I think we ought to be looking for ways to uh, encourage innovation and development in Bitcoin and crypto, crypto more broadly. Now, I want to thank you. That was an excellent question. I want to thank everyone out there who had questions. I want to thank our Verdict Plus community. I want to thank Carol Brown and the Irving Brown Lecture Series. I want to thank the William F. Buckley Jr. Program at Yale. I want to thank Young America's Foundation. I want to thank our friend Liz Wheeler, host of The Liz Wheeler Show, and cloakroom over at Verdict Plus. Senator, I always want to thank you. And I want to thank everyone who is tuned in here in the room. I want to thank everyone who's tuned in on YouTube. This has been a wonderful time with all of you at Yale. Thank you so much. I'm Michael Knowles. This is Verdict with Ted Cruz. This episode of Verdict with Ted Cruz is being brought to you by Jobs, Freedom, and Security PAC, a political action committee dedicated to supporting conservative causes, organizations, and candidates across the country. In 2022, Jobs, Freedom, and Security PAC plans to donate to conservative candidates running for Congress and help the Republican Party across the nation. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., we dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.